It is good to worship with you this morning. Uh, I imagine you look around, you see all these beautiful decorations. Uh, there is and there has been an army of people and volunteers that were willing to give their time to decorate not only this room, but uh, the church as a whole. And I think it would be good for us to clap. And yeah. I know there's even many in this room who've helped. Thank you. Uh, it, it means a lot, and it doesn't go unnoticed. Well, it's good to worship with you this morning, and as you've noticed in our singing, in our decor around the building, in our Advent reading, we've come upon, rather quickly, I might add, the Christmas season. There was a fictional character in a TV show once named Frank. Frank was a father who found himself at a store purchasing a doll for his son. He and another father went for the last doll on the shelf at the same time. And Frank recounted this. As I rained blows upon him, I realized there had to be another way. Well, fed up with Christmas, Frank started his own holiday, uh, Festivus. Now, that's a fictional and a, a silly story, but it can represent the worst of the Christmas season. We're fish who don't know that we are wet. We swim in the waters of a materialistic, uh, comfortable culture. Our worries, anger, frustration, and concerns at times in this season can be as trivial as finding the right toy. Christians in recent years have noticed some of this and have made an intentional effort to communicate, quote, Jesus is the reason for the season. And you, you see that uh, in a lot of places. And certainly this, this is true. This is true. As faithful followers of Christ, Christmas is the celebration of the birth of a Savior. But behind the birth of the Savior, what, what does that deliver? What is the reason behind the providence of God and the birth of a promised child in this season? Well, our sermon title and the theme this month is Freedom in Christmas. The birth of Jesus as we celebrate it in our Advent season is the direct sovereign action of the God of the universe to free his people, to rescue them, to redeem them, to change them, to be with them, and to be in them. I'll ask that you grab a copy of the scriptures, please, and turn to Galatians chapter 4. We'll be in verses 8 through 20. And this morning, our passage demonstrates the character of God and how God uses people in our lives. The biblical narrative puts it this way. Humanity turned their backs on God. And through redemptive history, throughout all the scriptures, God doesn't give up on his people. He pursues them to free them from sin and to free them from a life of living apart from him. This morning, really, the main idea I'm trying to convince myself of and, and all of us as we leave here, the main idea is this. Jesus is enough because God 
doesn't give up on his people. And really, this is the ultimate reason for the season. Christmas is about the plan of God to free us. He doesn't give up on humanity, though we might deserve the reverse, but rather he sent his son, as we read in our text last week, to be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us and to adopt us as his children. Well, God doesn't give up on us in two ways in our text here. First, we see the freedom of Christmas proclaimed. Would you read verses 8 through 11 with me, please? Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now, now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how? How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul once again reminds these Galatian believers of their former life. So in verse 8, that word again that we saw last week, a child without Christ, a life before Jesus, the former life of a faithful follower of Christ is enslaved. Enslaved to sin, to idols, controlled and directed, not by God, but by self. Do you find it surprising that Paul references his former life and their former life so often in our letter? Well, you shouldn't be. It's been a long-standing reality and tradition going back to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Faithful followers of Christ are ones who look back at what God has done in their life. Now, I know none of you are perfect. I know those of you that have trusted in Jesus, you're growing in holiness and sanctification. But do you ever look back at what you were? At what you pursued? At what your life one time consisted of? <laughs> It's not just a looking back that Paul does, recollecting on how God has saved him, but it's a relishing in his current state. Look at verse 9 again as he put it. You have come to know God. Yeah, you look back and you look back at a life that hated God, that was in rebellion to him, that walked contrary to his ways, but relish in this. You have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. What I love is Paul is always quick to emphasize the initiation, the love, the pursuit, and the work of God. Many can boast that they know God, that they've heard the preaching of the gospel of Christ, 
or that they are even faithful followers. Many people can say those things. The question is not, do you know God? But does God know you? Has he done a work in your heart? Does the Spirit of God reside in you? Jesus says it this way in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? I know you, God. I know you. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The question is not, do you know God? But does he know you in personal relationship with his son? Paul, in our Galatians 4 passage, is retelling the conversion story of the Galatian believers. You were enslaved. Now, you don't just know God. You are known by God. But you want to go back? You want to go back to your former life? You think Jesus isn't enough? You're observing days and months and seasons and years in verse 10? And here's the critical verse, and really the transitional verse of our passage in verse 11. I am afraid. I may have labored over you in vain. This is what we have to wrestle with, brothers and sisters. And it's the same thing that Paul had to wrestle with. If freedom is proclaimed in the gospel, if freedom is proclaimed in the coming of a Savior, in Christmas, in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, then we have to wrestle with this. The potential emptiness of our efforts. As we'll read in a moment, Paul was a diligent man in Acts 13. When we first met, when he first met these Galatian believers, he did serve them well. He proclaimed the freedom of Christmas. He proclaimed the coming of a Savior, the rescue from sin, and the rescue from the law. It seemed that they were faithful followers of Christ. It seemed that Jesus truly was enough for them. It seemed that Paul's ministry had been fruitful and effective. The reality is there is a potential emptiness and vanity to Paul's work and to ours. See, underneath that is this biblical truth. Only God can use our work. Only God can change a heart. Only God can sustain someone to be a faithful follower of Christ. Now, God is kind to use us in people's lives, just as Paul was used. But think for a moment what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God 
who gives the growth. Can we just sit on this for a moment? By God's grace, you and I will do what Paul did, and that's proclaim the freedom of Christmas. We will first remind ourselves of how we've been changed, how we've become known by him, and then we will share with others. It's what faithful followers of Christ do. They have intentional outreach. And if we don't, well, let's just call a spade a spade. We're not only failing to live out the core values of our local church and who we say we are, but we are in direct opposition to the commands of Christ. Another way to say that is we're in sin. But there is great grace for us, brothers and sisters. There is great grace for us in the gospel of Christ. God is pleased with us in Christ, despite our imperfect obedience, because Jesus truly is enough. So perhaps, perhaps the proclamation of Christmas and freedom that we see in Paul's life Perhaps it would spur us on as a reminder to be faithful in these areas of life. But what are the practical implications of verse 11? To everyday life. You, you know tomorrow's Monday, right? What are the practical implications to verse 11 on a Monday morning? Well, I think like Paul, we should labor to point people to Jesus. Like Paul, we should have a healthy fear for people's souls. When he says, I'm afraid, why is Paul afraid? Because he loves people. Because he has a fear that their soul wouldn't be united with Christ. We should follow that. Like Paul, we should seek to be used by God because God doesn't give up on his people. He uses us. And like Paul, we should plant and water and trust God. So here's a good question for you and I to wrestle with tomorrow on Monday. What is success? What does it mean to be a successful parent? What does it mean to have a successful marriage or to be a successful employer or an employee? What does it mean to be a successful friend? Well, what does it mean to be successful in sports? I mean, Vikings fans, we don't know. I mean, we're asking. What does it mean? What does it mean to be successful as a church? How would Lakewood Church be successful? And here's the answer. Success is faithfulness. I planted, Apollos watered. We were just faithful. And God gave the growth. You want to be a successful parent? Be faithful. Water and plant. Trust God will give the growth. You want to be a faithful employee tomorrow? You want to be a successful employee, rather? Be faithful in your workplace. God will give the growth.
And here's why we might not like that answer. Because it seems, it can seem to lack the results in the tangible control that we want. If success is faithfulness and being diligent to plant and to water and trusting that God will give the growth, well, then we kind of lack the control and the ability to manipulate and manufacture the results that we want. But faithful followers of Christ, we don't try to manipulate the results. We don't manufacture what we think success is. We are faithful and we trust God to give the growth. And by God's grace, you and I will proclaim the freedom of Christmas and trust that God will use it. Now, God doesn't give up on his people as the freedom of Christmas, it's proclaimed. But God also doesn't give up on his people as the freedom of Christmas is personified. Personified. It's not just proclaimed, but it's lived out. In God's pursuit of his people, he doesn't just give us information, data, or a message. It's not like the Matrix where they just plug you in and they upload and now I know Kung Fu. No, no, no. There's much more than just information. And as we've alluded to this already, God, he gives us, brothers and sisters, God gives us one another. He gives us friends. He gives us brothers and sisters. He gives us the body of Christ. He gives us what we call here relational community. The freedom of Christmas and the coming of a Savior and his work, it's personified in the people whom God lives in and in the people whom God will use to pursue the hearts of people. Would you read with me just this section in our passage, verses 12 through 20? Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Oh, I wish I could be present with you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Here we see the personal plea of friends. Paul, in this passage, gives us some insight into the heart and his relationship with these Galatian friends. 
It's easy for us to read a missionary account in Acts 13 and forget that these biblical characters, they're not fictional. They're real people. And real people have issues. And real people need help. Real people are afflicted, needy. And real people are the means of grace that God uses in people's lives. There's some debate among scholars on the exact date of the letter of Galatians. Theories range from like the late 40s to the early 50s. What we do know, however, is that after Paul's initial visit to South Galatia, a couple years later, he writes to them recounting here about when they first met their relationship. What, and and, and not just a recounting, but a pleading, become like me, he says. Become like me. Jesus is enough. And he makes this plea and he talks about their relationship. But what stands out about the description of their relationship? I want to point out a couple things that I think would be helpful in our text. First, we see the start of a friendship. It seems that their friendship, Paul's even being in South Galatia, his proclamation of freedom in Christ, it was... Plan B. I get that from verse 13. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. I didn't have a passport and a plane ticket. It wasn't in my itinerary. I wasn't heading to your region. But verse 13, plan B, I found myself in your neck of the woods. The full details of the situation are unknown. In Acts, it doesn't say anything about it, how he got there or what the ailment was. Some commentary suggests that the ailment prevented Paul from traveling any further. So he had to stop there. So Paul and Barnabas find themselves in front of a people they perhaps didn't plan on meeting. But they still proclaimed a gospel that they knew they needed. Isn't this the wise planning and the sovereign directing of God that we see time and time again, not just in the scriptures, but in our own lives? Proverbs 16, 9 says this. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And many of us have learned that humble lesson multiple times over. The Lord ultimately directs, leads, and intersects us with the exact people that he wants us to. And that's how it was with Paul and these Galatian believers. And that is how it is with you and I. Perhaps you didn't intend to rub shoulders with that one someone. They look different. They talk differently. They don't listen well and they complain. Their preferences aren't as godly as yours. Is it possible that God would direct us to be in each other's lives, just as we read here? That it's not plan B? Is it possible that God would direct in such a way that he would have friendships and relational community that we would, we would have these things with the people we didn't initially anticipate? 
It's not only possible. It's divine design. Every face you see here, divinely appointed, not plan B, but exactly who the Lord has put in front of you, just like with Paul. The start of a friendship. But second, in Paul's personal plea with his friends, we not only see the start of their friendship, but the mutual care of friendship. If you are new to the idea of friendship, or like many of us, you struggle to make and maintain friendships, here's a healthy model for us to see, I think. We know Paul cared for these Galatians. He proclaimed the gospel in the midst of a physical ailment even. He sacrificed his preferences, his needs, and his comfort. And as he says in verse 16, he told them the truth. The truth of their condition. And as we spoke about last week, a condition where they were enslaved to sin, they were enslaved to the requirements of the law, but Paul, he cared for them by sharing the message of freedom in Christ. But the care of Paul, it wasn't a one-way street. The care was mutual. One-sided relationships, one person putting in all the effort, all the care, all the energy, that's not a friendship. Friendship is not a transaction either. Well, I'll care for you if you meet the stipulations of our agreement. No. Mutual care. Real relationships are both parties coming to meet the other person where they are. Paul did that, but so did these Galatian believers. So here comes Paul. Well, before we do that, I mean, in verses 14 and 15, I, I think that's exactly what the Galatians were doing. They were providing mutual care. And this is interesting because scholars point out that the Greco-Roman culture was often cruel and suffering people were often mocked, spit upon, and scorned. One person says, quote, It was common to spit when encountering someone with an obvious infirmity or disability in order to ward off evil spirits. So this morning, if you cough around me, I might spit on you. That's, I'm, just, I'm just following tradition. So here comes Paul. Here comes Paul with a physical ailment, not able to travel any further. God intersects this weak man. And don't get it twisted. Paul is a weak, weak man. Paul intersects this weak man with these pagan Gentile Galatians. <laughs> and he proclaims Christ, freedom. And they not only receive him and his message, but they care for him. Look again, verse 14. It says, though my condition was a trial to you. It likely meant that they not only observed his suffering, but they themselves cared for Paul. That's amazing. They extended hospitality in such a way that they went over and beyond what was required of them socially. They were willing to even suffer. They're going to gouge out their own eyes to give to Paul. They were even willing to suffer to alleviate Paul's pain. 
Lakewood. Brothers and sisters, are we marked by this same kind of mutual care? Paul says the Galatians in verse 14 did not scorn or despise, but they received and they served. Faithful followers of Christ are marked by this kind of relational community. We don't look down on others. We don't look down on others. The Greco-Roman world mocked, spit, and scorned. And the world we live in right now mocks, spits, and scorns with people they don't agree with or people that look differently than them. Can I, I just be honest for a moment and share that this is actually one of the deepest concerns that I have in my heart, for the church at large in our country. Should we have doctrinal fidelity? Yes. Should we pursue lives of holiness? Yes. Should we stand for biblical values and teaching? No question, yes. But is it possible that we've fallen into the trap of playing the same kind of fuzzy math these Galatian believers were. A trap where we add cultural, traditional, or new social insights onto the gospel that just quite simply aren't in the text. That is happening in our churches in this country, is it not? It is. There's a trap of championing preferences and pride and opinions over the body of Christ. And can we be honest? Specifically, as a local church, we've gone through some stuff in the past few years. Is it possible that we would allow the fracturing, the difficulty, the trials of years past to tempt us to look at others here with mocking, with spit, and with scorn. It's certainly possible. May the Lord protect us. May we mutually care for one another. And brothers and sisters, by God's grace, you are mutually caring for one another. God help us to do it more. Lastly, as we consider the personal plea of friends, I want us to hone in on verse 19 and consider for a moment the goal of friendship. Read verse 19 again. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He makes it clear in the prior verses in 17 and 18 that these Judaizers, these legalists, wanted to turn the Galatian believers to Jesus plus works because it ultimately had the goal of elevating the legalists. If the legalists could get them to say that Jesus was not enough, that the obedience to the law made them right with God, then those Judaizers would gain the control. They would again be the teachers the one the people had to go to for permission on their religious life. But in contrast, what is Paul's goal 
that Christ is formed in you. Here's how you know if someone is your friend. Bunch of kids in here. Kids, this is how you know if that person is your friend. Do they have your best interest in mind? And if they have your best interest in mind, they will point you to Christ. They'll point you to what brings true peace and freedom. They'll say, your friends, your true friends will say, Jesus is enough. Is that the desire that you have as parents and children, as employees, as friends? What do the people around you, what do we need most deeply? We need the freedom of Christ. We need changed hearts and lives in the gospel. If that is the case, in this Christmas season, in the midst of plans and meals and fighting over the last doll at the store, Will you live? Will you say and proclaim to a needy world that Jesus is enough? Is Paul's concern for his friends the product of his own planning or even his own heart? No. Paul met these guys because God intersected their path. Paul loves these guys and pleads with them because of the concern and the heart that God had given him for his friends. People like Paul, like you and I, we are the means of grace that God uses, not just to proclaim his message, but to personify it, to care for people. We are called by the enabling of the Spirit of God living in us to reach a needy world because God doesn't give up on his people. He'll even send you and I to reach them. May God help us to do that this week. Jesus is enough because God doesn't give up on his people. And brothers and sisters, that's what we do on a communion Sunday. Communion is the physical, tangible reminder that God doesn't give up on his people. That the promises of God are yes and true and amen in Christ. So as you eat a little wafer and you drink juice, you physically feel it. It's real. You'll eat it. You'll taste it. And in the same way, this is real. God doesn't give up on you. He doesn't give up on the people around you. At this time, I'll ask those serving communion to come forward. Communion is a family meal. If you are a faithful follower of Christ, not if you're perfect, if you are a believer, if you declare Jesus is enough, and by God's grace, you're aiming to follow him. Take this tangible reminder as a grace that he hasn't given up on you and others. If you're here and you're visiting Lakewood and you're not a faithful follower, you're considering Christianity and you're just watching, staring at all these religious people as they eat crackers and juice, you're in a good place. 
Thank you for being here. Allow this to pass on. And allow it to be an opportunity that you reflect on your own life, the person and the work of Christ. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then uh, our leaders here will pass out the elements. Father, uh, thank you. Thank you for this tangible, physical reminder of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Thank you that you did not give up on your humanity, but at the appointed time, in the right season, you sent Jesus to be born of a woman. Thank you. Thank you for the freedom of Christmas. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.